Hello, and welcome to Cosmic Top Secret, the podcast about NATO's past, present, and future. I'm your host, Professor Michael John Williams, and today I have the distinct pleasure to speak with Dr. Stephanie Bobst. Dr. Bobst recently retired from NATO and had a remarkable professional journey in the Alliance's international staff. Over the course of 22 years, she held different positions in the Public Diplomacy Division, which she eventually led as Deputy Assistant Secretary General from 2006 to 2012. The post made her the highest-ranking German woman in the International Secretariat. From 2012 to 2020, she led NATO's Strategic Foresight Team, a fabulous civil-military team advising the NATO Secretary General and Chairman of the Military Committee on strategic unknowns and potential upcoming crisis situations in geographical and functional areas of relevance to the Alliance. She's taken the time since leaving NATO to write a book called Zeyende Algis, Boots from Strategischen Kurswechsel, which in English means with eyes wide open, the courage for a strategic course change. The book is available in German in Germany and will hopefully be available soon in English. But I'm so pleased she's been able to take the time to speak with us about the book, which details her views on Germany and NATO, why they both need to do better on Ukraine and on confronting the threat from Russia. Dr. Stephanie Bobs, welcome to Cosmic Top Secret. So, Stephanie, in your book, Blind Spots, you open uh, with a scene where you're giving testimony to the Bundestag on the EU strategic compass. And this is February 2022, just before uh, Russia actually invades Ukraine. Um, and in the book, you paint a vivid portrait of this exchange that you have. Could you recount that for us? I think it really illuminates a lot of the challenges in Europe, but especially Germany, on how Russia is viewed. Right. Um, yeah, this brings us back to a couple of days, as you said, prior to Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Um, the German Bundestag uh, organized a joint session of the Defense and Foreign Policy Committee, and they invited a couple of experts not to talk about the looming war, but to talk about the strategic compass of the European Union, which then existed as, I think, a draft two or three version And uh, different experts were invited to uh, basically share their take on the draft. I was last in a row of altogether four or five and just listening, I mean, to my expert colleagues and the uh, subsequent conversations between them and a couple of those MPs sitting in front of us. I was absolutely flabbergasted that nobody mentioned the looming war. Nobody even mentioned that there was a big military buildup by Russian along the Ukrainian border. And, you know, the time ticked. Uh, hours passed. Uh, after almost two and a half hours, it was my turn. And the chairman asked me to give my presentation. I was, I think, invited to do an eight-minute type brief presentation about, again, the strategic compass. And I was so annoyed and so upset of what I'd heard that I must admit, I, yeah, I couldn't help but actually yelling at the MPs uh, sitting in front of me. And I, I said to them, listen, I mean, you are completely disconnected from reality. Uh, I mean, why don't we talk about the elephant in the room, which is right in front of us, which is that it is very, very, very likely that we're going to see the first conventional big scale war in the midst of Europe. And you hardly mention it. Instead, you talk about a bureaucratic draft exercise within the European Union, which is completely disconnected from what I would like to talk about. So I put the question to them, 
What is your plan? How do you intend to react in case Russia attacks Ukraine? And there was dead silence in the room. And I also recall that uh, one of my uh, MP colleagues, um, Tony Hofreiter, you know, from the Green, who I know personally a, a little bit, he sent me a WhatsApp. And on that WhatsApp, um, it read, oh, you are always so terribly straightforward and refreshing, Stephanie. That was the only reaction I received firsthand. And then there were a couple of questions put to me, how I would evaluate the likelihood of Russia attacking Ukraine, how I would assess Ukraine's military capability posture to defend themselves, etc. But after these three hours, and again, this short back and forth I had with the MPs, I left with the really strong impression that here were a joint session of all the members, long-term standing members of the German Defense and Foreign Policy Committee, and they had no clue, you know, how to relate to what was coming. They had no plan. They never had any type of, you know, real in-depth conversation, let alone debate or policy advice to the government how we should go about it. And so I was really, really upset. I recall when I left the Bundestag, the Reichstag, I went to a bar, a cafe bar, in order to get myself a cafe under the linden. And, and I called my husband, Holger, and I said, you don't believe what just happened. I mean, we are so ill-prepared. If even, it's even worse than I thought. And since this time, there has been talk in Germany of a turning point, right? Right. A lot of rhetoric. And some would say Germany has done a lot, but you you have a different take on it. I mean, how do you evaluate uh, the German role in assisting Ukraine and thinking more broadly about the Russia challenge to date? Well, I, I think it's no secret that I am amongst those who criticizes the German government actually since day one of the war, because I think they're neither strategically up to par nor really up to par in terms of helping prepare the broader public to understand what is really at stake. And let me illustrate that with three, let's say, broad observations. We must give the government, the traffic-like government, I guess, a bit of a credit by recalling that when they were elected, they wanted to start with a completely different agenda. I mean, their primary political agenda was about pushing back on climate change, and uh, they advocated a broad-based economic and social transformation agenda. Foreign policy, security policy, European security issues didn't even feature in their party programs prominently. So what I'm saying, in other words, is they were ill-prepared altogether. Uh, and I'm, I'm not excluding any of those three parties, the Liberals, the Greens, and even worse, I say, the Social Democrats. Why I'm saying worse, the Social Democrats? Because you have, until this very day, two years after the beginning of the Russian war against Ukraine, still a majority view within the Social Democratic Party, which is very much driven by, let's say, nostalgic Russia image. Yeah? I mean, they view Russia very much in terms of they are more or less our, let's say, spiritual brothers. We must not repeat what we did wrongly in history. We have certain responsibility when thinking about the German role in the Second World War. And all that to say is this view also encompasses the idea that 
any type of military robust response to an aggressor is per definition almost something bad. Something, I mean, that you can't possibly sell to your home-based electorate. Something that you don't want to talk in public. So there are many other, let's say, elements that inform the social democratic views. But bottom line is that Chancellor Scholz and his closest aides in the Social Democratic Party, very much supported by the broad-based members in, um, on, on, on the state level, on the federal level, holds the view that at some point it's better to, you know, appease Russia, to prepare for the time where we could eventually get back into business with Russia, that we should do everything to avoid escalation. So escalation avoidance is a theme, is a message that the government trumpeted from day one and they subordinated everything else under this message. Again, we have now wasted almost two years. The government still has a full-fledged strategy towards Russia. They remain reluctant to provide Ukraine with key capabilities, military capabilities that could in any form, quote-unquote, endanger or provoke Russia. Here we can also talk about the Taurus debate, which is a very common one. Um, But we also have the view that at some point, you know, at least that's the view I think you, you find also in the Chancery, the Ukrainians will simply have to be dragged to the negotiation tables because they will not have the means to continue resisting militarily this mighty aggressor called Russia. So let's better prepare for the time when the Russians really signal a preparedness to come to the negotiation table. And this is pretty brutal what I'm saying here, but it's hidden behind all this rhetoric about Zeitenwende. Because if you really look at what has been implemented, really implemented, in terms of military capabilities, of structural reforms, of resilience, of support for uh, Ukraine, etc., it's a patchwork of little things that couldn't be avoidable, that the German government had to do, but they're still shying away from really acknowledging that Russia remains an existential threat to to European security and that Germany needs to to respond to that. They simply don't want to hear that. So let's, you mentioned the Taurus missile debate. So the Taurus missile is a German, Swedish-German manufactured missile that has a stealth technology and can go up to 500 kilometers, about 300 miles for American listeners. And the Ukraine has requested that weapon uh, and the German government has, has refused to provide it. What's going on there? Well, uh, the arguments that the German government put forward to explain their refusal, they have varied over the past couple of months. They started out by saying that their range is too long. Ukrainians could eventually target, let's say, Russian towns or military infrastructure on Crimea, on Russian Federation soil, and they don't want to do that because that could provoke Russia. That was argument number one. A few weeks later, a few months later, they came up with a second argument saying, oh, well, I mean, the technology inside, basically the black box is something that we would need to share with the Ukrainians. It's super sensitive. We don't want to do that. It would be even against German constitution. Excuse my language, but that was another second bullshit argument that was completely irrelevant. And then the third 
also because they have been pressured by the opposition government quite a bit um, to have a broad-based debate about these type of arguments in the Bundestag, in the parliament, they said, well, I mean, if we would give our Ukrainians um, so and so many of the Tauros, then we would run out, out of our own stocks, you know, and Germany's defense uh, would be put at risk. So we don't want to do that. So, yes, they changed arguments plenty of times. And what I think the underlying motive still remains after all these many, many months where we go in circles in the political debate is that key people in the chancellor office, including the chancellor himself, look at this particular capability as too provocative for Russia. And they repeat this let's say, this uh, this uh, hesitation, this attitude. That's why I say that we go in circles. Every single time the Ukrainian side comes forward and really asks for a capability that for their own operational needs would really be in a position to, or help them rather, to target critical, you know, military infrastructure beyond Ukrainian soil. Yeah. We had this with the Leos, the Leopard tanks. We had a similar debate about fighter jets. We had another debate uh, early on about other forms of tanks, the Gepard, the Marder, everything which is in Germany's meager inventory, meager military inventory, and the Ukrainians asked for was first of all responded by the by the, by the government by saying no. No, no. And then it dragged on and on and on. And then allies called and prime ministers and foreign ministers called. And so we really go in circle. And what is so detrimental about this is that we lose super, super precious time because every time we spend here in Germany months to debate the pros and cons of a particular military capabilities by people who actually don't really have a good judgment on it, because they're not military experts, but uh, but politicians, we give the Russian side an advantage. And we've seen, you know, what has been, what happened last summer and last autumn when the Russians used exactly that time to fortify their own defenses. When they used the time we gave them, basically, to go out uh, to their partners and organize additional deployments, quote-unquote, missiles, drones, I mean, the whole hooray. And so this is not a theoretical political debate. It really has an impact, and I'm afraid to say a negative impact, on the battlefield. And you mentioned missing the window of opportunity. It's not just Germany here, right? And you were at NATO for many, many years, and NATO's not actually uh, supplying anything, right? But there are discussions at NATO then that go back to allied capitals, and then allies are sending things bilaterally. And then, of course, there's the European Union that has been doing stuff within the bloc. Um, but there also seems to be a real lack of hesitancy and commitment in, in the EU, where, of course, Germany is a big player. So what's going on there exactly? Why is the, you know, they pledged 1 million uh, 155 shells 
They've supplied about a quarter uh, million of those, uh, of those 250,000. And um, there's no way to get more of them. <laughs> there's no manufacturing increase. They can't buy really any more on the market. The U.S. also has ramped up some production, but um, not enough. Um, why the, the rhetoric, Europe is heavy on rhetoric, but really ultimately light on, on action. I couldn't have phrased it better, Michael. Yeah, we are, Europeans are really wonderful on rhetoric. Um, but there are a number of really structural problems um, that needs to be tackled. But problem number one is that Europe at large, the European Union, still, after all these years of talking about a common defense and security policy, still has a highly fragmented defense industrial structure. So even if there would be political will collectively to go and tell defense um, industries in an X number of countries, you please beef up, you know, schnell. I mean, you accelerate your production and this is the deadline and here are our contracts and here is the money. Even if all this would have taken place, the defense, let's say, landscape, the defense production and military landscape in Europe is so highly fragmented and so competitive still, and so little standardized, that it's very, very difficult in order for the European Union, for instance, to give that, let's say, that uh, to provide this, this guidance, and then there would be an implementation plan. That's a structural problem. And we know that it exists for, what, 20, 25, 30 years. And still, it's not really, really tackled. The number two problem is that there is a lack of a sense of urgency, at least in some countries. I include my own country, Germany, here again, but this applies also for a number of the southern countries, Portugal, Spain, even France to a certain extent. They have almost let the first year of the war go without actually having the first conversations with representatives from defense industries in order to ask them to really accelerate production. Whereas other countries, the Czech Republic, uh, the Baltic countries, Poland, and I guess the most serious of all are Finland and Sweden, primarily Finland, they really not just talked, they put deeds by the words and, and actually started to accelerate their defense production in a very targeted manner. So you have this plethora of different, let's say, standards, of different speeds, of different political spaces where these conversations take place. And then my third point would be very quickly, and this reminds me a bit of what the alliance did in support of Afghanistan. You've been there, I've been there, we've seen, I mean, uh, what went wrong. We have not a well-coordinated, transparent way of providing coordinated, meaningful both military and financial and economic support for Ukraine. We have a patchwork of different structures, of different fora. We have not only, we don't only have the EU and NATO, we also have the G7. We have individual countries, uh, a plethora, a patchwork of bilateral agreements between country A and Ukraine. So let me just illustrate this by one little story. The other day I... A couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with a former NATO colleague and I asked her whether she could provide me 
as a friendly gesture with the current overview about what do individual NATO countries provide to Ukraine in terms of military equipment and training? Because my understanding was, my thought was, I mean, they, they need to have, I mean, they need to have some some charts. They keep on running and updating. <laughs> and she, she said to me, no, we don't have that. We don't have that. I said, well, there must be somebody in the operationals division, I mean, who keep track of all these different flows, yeah, uh, conversation and practical flows. And she said, no, because this is still done in Wiesbaden at the Army, U.S. Army Command, you know, in Rammstein, and uh, they don't share all the papers. Uh, there is a lack of transparency, and we don't get papers from individual countries. We don't get status reports, let alone any type of implementation or performance reports. Yeah. And um, I thought, gee, I mean, that's even worse than I thought, because again, back then, a couple of years ago, in support of Afghanistan, we already had that. We had a big, big deficit in transparency and delivering aid in a coordinated and, and meaningful manner so that the adversary country, in this case, Ukraine, could, could also absorb, yeah, really absorb what we sent to them. So different problems and none of them really tackled. Yeah. And of course, the accountability issue, I mean, I'm of the opinion based on what I've read that most of everything is being utilized in the way it should be utilized. But you may have seen that we had some reporting in the U.S. about uh, certain s systems going missing, right? And the army, the way it was reported was portrayed as, or is it being lost to corruption or being sold on to a third party? And the military in the U.S. was saying, no, no, it's, I mean, this is a war zone. And it's like not being yeah. tracked necessarily well, even on our end, right? We said, and, 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 mm. and of course, the problem here is you want to maintain strong support and, and demonstrate that this is not like Afghanistan, whereas we both know there were a lot of problems in terms of um, the transparency and just too many conduits going in and supplying too right. many things, which is difficult um, to, to monitor and then also uh, have uptake on. Um, the So Europe is, is is failing to collectively get behind Ukraine in, in, in its action, which I think sets a stage for a difficult uh, third year in the war. Um it also, I think, is complicating issues in the U.S. And it is problematic given that, as, as you're well aware, and listeners will know that you know, we currently can't pass additional aid package uh, in, right. in the Congress. And that may happen. But there's a big question mark in, in November of 24 uh, about who will be in the White House in January of 25. In light of where we're headed, how do you, you rate the U.S. leadership thus far um, on this issue? And what do you think the U.S. needs to, should have done differently and could do better going forward? Well, let me just, by way of answering your question, say, I really, despite all my criticism, I, I, I really continue to be a transatlantic believer because there is no alternative. So I, I simply want to make this clear at the very beginning. But looking at the Biden administration and despite all the positive vibes that have been receiving and still receive, I have one big issue with the Biden administration's broadly strategic or a broader strategic take on Ukraine. And this is that at the very, very beginning of the war, President Biden already set the parameter for what he would not be willing to do. And if you face a strategic adversary such as Russia, 
if you face a strategic adversary such as China, you don't spell out in your strategy what you are not prepared to do. You don't base it on a strategy, let's say, of escalation avoidance. But this is what he did. Yeah, He basically said, I simply recall it uh, uh, one more time, we support Ukraine with whatever we can do, sure, but we will not meet Russia on the battlefield. We will not seek a direct confrontation. We will not go to war with Russia. Well, if the two of us, Michael, would put ourselves just for a smart second in the shoes of somebody working in the Kremlin at that time, what would be our reactions be? Yeah, what what had our reactions be? So ever since these, let's say, fundamental decisions had been made by the White House and then, of course, supported by the government, we keep on signaling to the Russian side that we hope in one or the other way that Ukrainians will muddle through, that they will be brave enough to remain resilient, that they will have enough ammunition in the true sense of the world to resist this Russian ongoing aggression. And this is not a strategy. It is not. It is a muddling through type of strategy. And it's based on the assumption, the wrong assumption in my view, that you can manage or tame (laughs) at some point an aggressive actor such as Russia. Somebody who pursues a policy of nuclear blackmail all the time and commits war crimes and is really, really, you know, eager to not only destroy Ukraine and the Ukrainian statehood, but to destabilize Europe to such an extent that both the European Union and ultimately, so hopes Putin, also NATO falls apart. So this is the seriousness of the threat. Now, what can we do about it? Yeah, what can we do? I would very much like to see the Biden administration and obviously also European capitals to start with a simple sentence, with a simple truth, namely to acknowledge unambiguously that Russia is an existential threat that we must eliminate. That should be our strategic objective. And I'm using these pretty harsh words on purpose because any less unambiguous words don't really help us in describing our strategic objective. Yeah. Russia must suffer a defeat. If we are all really clear about this, then it shouldn't be that difficult to draw up a plan. I mean, a real plan and not just a a series of press conferences and, and summits, you know, about the instruments that we have in order to, to successfully achieve these objectives. And there are a number of instruments that we have that we need to really pull and plug together, not just the military, but also I'm looking at economic sanctions. I'm looking at and at foreign relations uh, to third countries. I'm looking at hybrid and disinformation. I mean, there is a whole list of, let's say, issues that we would need to really pull together. So we need to replace the strategy of escalation avoidance with a very clear, clearly spelled out, multi-domain, targeted containment strategy. We will be in there for the long haul. If we don't do this, President Putin will continue to play the Vidit Emperor with us. Yeah, and he will simply wait us out. 
And so, yes, I wish President Biden, despite the electoral campaign and all the pressures on him, would be courageous enough to understand that this is not a Biden, but it's Churchill moment. <laughs> it's Churchill moment. Yeah. And if he would march, go, march forward and, for instance, say, I want to start accession talks with Ukraine uh, in NATO now, that would signal a strategic message to Putin. But not, you know, look at, oh, what can we possibly do at the Washington 75th anniversary summit in order to underline that NATO has been the most successful military alliance in history? No, this is not a message. So, yes, I feel pretty strong about what needs to be done. You believe Ukraine can and should then become a, an, an ally as, as soon as possible? I mean, of course, of course. We let them in a security void ever since 2008. You know, I, I was at NATO for all these 22 or 23 years. I don't know how much time of these years I spent working with Ukraine on all these different programs, partnership programs we set up, and all these different defense reform programs, and hundreds and hundreds of workshops and activities and committee sessions. No, Ukraine has proven over the past years, and it is proving now in particularly, ever since the, the, the war started, that it's really a worthwhile and a reliable ally with the probably most robust and experienced military capability we have amongst our ranks. So we should really, really get going on that because it is very, very clear to me, Russia will not let loose of Ukraine. They will remain in their neck. They will continue to try to destroy it. And when I'm saying destroying, I actually mean physically destruction of the, the Ukrainian statehood. And then they will move on uh, to the Balkans, to Moldova, to the Arctic, eventually even to the Balts. They have plenty of choices. And President Putin has made clear on a number of occasions what his strategic objectives are. So we better take that serious. Yeah, I think you, you made a great point, and I, I totally agree that the signals that Washington sent and um, that the EU sent uh, over the course of, let's say, from 2008 to the present, so those multiple administrations were hmm. mixed at best, if not inviting, regarding Ukraine and Georgia, Moldova, right? Um, and Putin has sent, I would argue, very clear signals about his intention pretty much since yeah. the Munich security uh, uh, conference speech in 2007. Right. And, right, and again, right. there's sort of this, uh, there's definitely been a general shift in the U S except of course, for this big split in the Republican party where they're no longer really defense, you know, national security defense oriented, but they've become in love with fascism themselves and sort of see Putin as something to emulate. And that party is, that's of course degrading yeah. consensus, but we've, we've really ignored those signals to, to our, our, our own, uh, our own danger. Um, that you mentioned, so bringing Ukraine in, what, how then uh, exactly should we approach Russia? What sort of strategy uh, do you think is necessary? We were chatting a little before we started recording, and you you mentioned George Kennan and, and containment. So, what sort of sh strategy would you employ vis a vis this challenge that you've elaborated that is not just limited to Ukraine, but is really a full on assault? Well, I, I personally believe it's worthwhile uh, looking one more time at George Kennan's long telegram and the subsequent 
subsequent publications, I mean, the thoughts behind. And uh, even that was a different era, and I would not suggest to copy it basically or translate it one by one. But many of the key thoughts, the key arguments Cannon put forward back then in 47 and subsequent years still resonate today, at least with me, because when he described the nature of the uh, former Soviet Union, when he described their radical ambition to really not just leave the strategic or reduce the strategic uh, competition between East and West to Europe, but, but really to the broader outlet, I mean, to the globe, basically. Uh, when he spoke about resilience, how important resilience of democratic countries were, I think many of these thoughts still apply today. So actually, I I looked at George Cannon, or I reread George Cannon's long telegram, and I think I've made a humble proposal for how we can use some of his thoughts uh, for crafting a, let's say, 2.0 containment st- strategy. A containment strategy would base would base on the assumption that Russia will remain at least, I mean, as long, I mean, I put it differently, Russia will remain an existential threat to European security as long as the system of Putin prevails. We don't know when it will fall, when it will crack, how it will transform. It may well be that we're going to see it in a few years. It may well be, I mean, that Putin will remain in power for a longer period of time. But even if Putin will no longer be president of the Russian Federation, the system that he has created over the past decades will likely prevail, including the ideological backing to it. The thought, I mean, that the West, the democratic West, is a strategic threat for this type of Russia. So, My point is that we need to prepare for the long haul. We need to have patience. We need to, you know, have a long, take a long breath. And we need to look at our, at our tool sets um, and look at how we can, in a combined and well-coordinated manner, implement them. And when I'm talking tool sets, I'm talking really the whole array. I'm talking our own military capability and defense preparedness. I'm talking... Nuclear, I think a very important component of a containment strategy should be an adaptation of NATO's nuclear posture, which in my humble view is long overdue. I think we should expand NATO's nuclear footprint, especially to countries like Poland, who would be eventually willing, at least they have made some noise about it, to host infrastructure and nuclear tactical capabilities. I think we should look at NATO countries who have just bought F-35s, which are dual uh, capable aircraft, perhaps, I mean, there are other countries who would like to participate in NATO's nuclear sharing agreement. So this is a political debate we would need to have. And this debate ultimately would help, in my view, strengthening NATO's nuclear deterrence posture and messages, which is very important if you face a nuclear adversary like Russia, who keeps on modernizing his own posture basically on a daily basis. So that's just one of many elements. But if we go through all the elements, all the tools, I mean, that will bring us really basically at a whole of society approach on our side. Yeah, Understand that we do have 
a deadly existential adversary that we face. And I'm not saying this in order to be overdramatic or to beat some war drums. So I think we need to be really realistic yeah, about what we are likely to face. You've highlighted some of this in this the answer you just gave, but at the summit in Washington, NATO will be 75 this year. What do you think need to be some of the concrete outcomes in the summit, in the communique? I mean, recalling the previous communique um, that was um, released at Vilnius, or in Vilnius in Lithuania, I thought the language on Russia was wishy-washy. It was not very clear in its strategic messaging. So I really hope uh, that the Allies would be able to agree on the proposed language that I just referred to, namely to really acknowledge Russia as an existential threat and um, abandon any wishful thinking that Russia's, uh, that this Russia could be managed or brought back into some type of European security architecture in the near future. So no, no backdoor that needs to be kept open. And then I obviously would like to see a date, not just a reference, but a date for the beginning of accession talks with Ukraine. I know this is not very realistic because we have in our midst at least four populist authoritarian-led governments, not only Mr. Erdogan and his Turkey, uh, not only Mr. Orban, but we also have now the Slovakian Prime Minister Fico, and we don't know yet how the uh, new yet-to-be-created Dutch government will look like, and whether Mr. Wilders, also nationalist, authoritarian, populist, not authoritarian, but very populist, anti-migration, Putin-friendly person, will staff his government. So yes, I mean, these gentlemen will most likely veto any type of move towards Ukraine enlargement. And the question that's put really on the table, at least for me, is will the rest of the gang, the rest of the NATO allies, simply watch and moan, or will they build their own coalition of the willings and move forward? Okay. So this is a... Uh, ambitious. I think it's a great ambitious agenda. It will remain to be seen um, what will happen. I think that it's, you, you mentioned we need a Churchill moment, which I definitely agree with. I also recall that uh, Churchill was viewed in the run-up to the start of the, the Second World War as a warmonger, right? Yeah. And then after uh, the Second uh, World War uh, in the, fifth, in the late, early 40s, and uh, when he would talk about the descent of an Iron Curtain, again, um, he was seen as being perhaps too provocative, right? The Truman administration was, uh, uh, wasn't on board, and it was really, you know, it took the Berlin crisis, um, the situation, the coup in Czechoslovakia in '48. Uh, to really churn the Americans to the, the notion that, yes, this yeah. was really a much bigger challenge. And so we, yeah. we do need someone to really beat those drums. Uh, perhaps you're one of them. Um, thank you so much for uh, your time today. And uh, your book, Blind Spots, is out uh, in German in Germany um, and available to read. Uh, and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing what you have to say in the coming months as we head towards the summit in, uh, in the summer. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. And uh, I'm looking forward to continue this conversation in one way or the other. But let me just say, we need American on our side. So go, go, go. (laughs) Thank you so much, Stephanie. You're welcome. Well, that's all for today's edition of Cosmic Top Secret. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Please do subscribe. You can find Cosmic Top Secret on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Audible, and Stitcher to name a few. If you're a NATO nerd, please do tell your friends about Cosmic Top Secret. And if you're not a NATO nerd and just an interested and informed listener, please also tell your friends that might be interested in learning more about the Alliance. I'd like to thank our producer, John Cure of Wayfair Recording, for producing the episode, as well as the Fulbright Program of the United States that made some of the research for this podcast possible. Many thanks for joining us. Please do tune in again. <laughs>